Our scripture reading is from Acts 19, verses 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is one of those passages of Scripture that just seems so strange to us, right? I mean, you have uh, handkerchiefs and aprons uh, healing people, casting demons out, uh, exorcists getting uh, beat up and, and, and running out of the house naked. I mean, these, it's like, how can, I, how can I preach this with a straight face to uh, a congregation in the 21st century? I mean, surely, right, this is one of those passages that that we need to take metaphorically, or there's some symbolic meaning here, but we, we can't really take this, this seriously. But I, I think as we look at the kind of literature that Acts is, it's inviting us, one, to take it seriously. And I just want to give a couple of, of quick reasons here at the beginning of, of why we should uh, take what Acts 19 is saying seriously this morning, um, that we won't want to be too quick to dismiss it. And, and the first is that um, there's only one culture in the world uh, that is uh, quick to dismiss or to not acknowledge supernatural evil, and, and you are living in that culture. <laughs> Western European white culture is the, really the one culture in the world that tends to discount uh, the reality of supernatural evil in the world. Uh, everywhere else in the world, South America, Asia, um, Africa, they, they take supernatural evil very seriously. Um, and, and maybe those cultures have something uh, to teach us. Uh, also, though, along with that, let's be clear, second, uh, modern scientific culture has corrected many of the abuses around uh, supernatural evil, and that's a really good thing. Look, no one wants to go back to, to literal witch hunts and witch trials. Uh, there's, there's not a devil behind every rock. Um, you know, not every time you can't find your car keys is that sometimes a uh, kind of demonic, satanic attack. Sometimes you just lose your car keys. Um, None of that is being, being, being questioned here this morning. And, and in particular, modern uh, Western medicine has, has saved millions of lives and, and dramatically reduced human suffering. Again, so, so none of that is, is being questioned by Acts 19. Uh, but third, what if, what if Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspects is right when he says that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he didn't exist? The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world 
that he didn't exist? Could it be uh, that our very skepticism about the reality of supernatural evil or even just the reality of a supernatural uh, dimension to our world at all is actually part of the problem? Uh, C.S. Lewis, the literary scholar who spent his life teaching at Oxford and then later at Cambridge, he taught medieval and Renaissance literature um, there, uh, he wrote in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve there is existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And then Lewis says this, he says, they themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You see, what Luke is showing us in this chapter is the reality of Jesus' power to transform, and he's showing us that that transformation is always disruptive. Jesus' power will always disrupt your life. Jesus' power will always disrupt your life. And this morning as we look at this passage, our 21st century materialist culture is intersecting, interacting with the magic culture of the first century. And if we let that intersection happen, uh, these two cultures intersecting with one another this morning, we're going to see three things. And the first is that Jesus' power will disrupt your view of reality. Second, that Jesus' power will disrupt what you treasure And third, Jesus' power will disrupt your city. His power will disrupt your view of reality. It will disrupt that which you treasure, which you cling to, which you prize, and will disrupt your city. And the first thing that that we see in verses 11 through 17 is that Jesus' power will disrupt your view of reality. Again, Luke, who is the author of the accounts that we're reading in in the book of Acts, is following the story of the Apostle Paul in this section of his book. Uh, Paul was a a key leader in the early Jesus movement. He's traveling throughout the Roman Empire, uh, sharing the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and, and the implications of that for every person on earth. And And what he's showing us again and again is that this message is powerful. It has the power to convince some intellectual skeptics and cynics in Athens. We saw that back in Acts chapter 17. That was the intellectual center of the ancient world. And here Luke is showing us that it's powerful enough to triumph over the supernatural powers in Ephesus, which was the magic sort of supernatural power capital of the ancient world. Even today, we still have collections of magic scrolls and spells that were uh, from Ephesus sitting in, in museums. And therefore, when Jesus begins his work in Ephesus through Paul and the other followers of Jesus there, he begins very differently. It's not through sort of intellectual debate like it was in Acts 17, but it is rather with displays of power over supernatural evil. So picture with me this scene. Paul is a, a tent maker. That's his trade that he learned. So he's, he's a rabbi. He's a teacher of the scriptures. But he also is a tent maker. He knows the trade of making tents, of working with leather. Um, he's practicing that trade wherever he goes. So he's doing that here in Ephesus, just like he was in Corinth, as Pastor Henry talked about last week. And, and this work that Paul does, making tents, working with leather, this is hard work. It's physical labor. And he's not working in an air-conditioned shop. <laughs> He's working in the marketplace in Ephesus. It's hot, it's sunny. Um, 
And so his, his work cloths, his coveralls, his aprons, his stuff is, gets sweaty and dirty. You've, you've been there, right? It's a humid Kansas City weekend. You're out there cutting the grass, working in the yard, and you come in, you've got those sweaty, smelly clothes. You take that off, throw it in the, the laundry hamper. So that's what Paul does at the end of the day. He takes out his work cloths, he takes off his coveralls, he tosses them in a pile, but then this stuff starts disappearing. What's happening to it? What are they doing with him? Well, people are taking his handkerchiefs. They're taking his, his work cloths, his aprons. And, and what are they doing with them? They're, they're taking them to sick people. Look again at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. This is crazy, right? I mean, how is this happening? I mean, this, I've had handkerchiefs that had the power to make people sick before. Um, I don't think I've ever had a handkerchief that had the power to make someone well. Uh, why in the world is God choosing this way of bringing people to healing in Ephesus? Well, I think it is because in a culture that was obsessed with sort of magical, spiritual, supernatural forces, it shows the power of Jesus in a unique way to that culture. In a culture where magic was performed with ritual and ceremony, Jesus is so powerful that he can, he can use a dirty old handkerchief to bring about healing. In a culture obsessed with the supernatural and the spiritual realm, Jesus can use an ordinary dirty rag to get his work done. And this significantly messes with the view of reality of the people in the city. They want to tap into this power because this is what their whole lives are built around. In fact, you see even these Jewish exorcists watching these displays of power happening, and they want to do that. Maybe they can sort of co-opt Jesus for their cause, for their work as, as exorcists in this city that's obsessed with magic and the spiritual realm. But it doesn't go well. I, I remember uh, when I graduated from college, I was, you know, 22 or whatever, and I thought, you know, I'm finally old enough to really watch some, some scary movies. I was wrong. I, I watched The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and, uh, and I, I don't think I literally, I don't think I slept the entire night. It completely freaked me out. Uh, I would just affirm that Bill does not do scary movies. Uh, but Luke's account here of these Jewish exorcists, it's more, it's more humorous than scary, and Luke is doing this on purpose. He adds, there's a lot of humor in this account we're going to point out. Listen to, listen to how, this is how he describes it. It's like these exorcists, they get together, they say, all right, well, let's, let's try this Jesus thing. I mean, he seems like he's got some power over uh, these spiritual forces here in Ephesus. Maybe that can be a part of our thing. And so um, you can imagine these, these seven guys get together and they sort of say, okay, let's, let's go find someone to, to try this out on. And uh, they find this demon-possessed man. And maybe they talk about, I don't know which one of them decided I'll, I'll be the one to speak, but one of the seven of these guys goes up to the man and, and he says, Spirit, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. Imagine at this point there's kind of a beat, a pause. Silence, everybody's watching. Did it work? Holding their breath. What's going to happen? And then the evil spirit starts giving them a hard time. He starts mocking them. He's like, I've heard of Jesus. I, you know, I know who Paul is, but who are you? What kind of power do you have? 
And at that moment, then the guy goes berserk, jumps all over them, beats them up, tears their clothes so badly that they're in tatters, falling off, and they, they run away, Luke says, naked and wounded. Jesus disrupted the view of reality that they had. You know, they had a view of reality, and this was common in the ancient world, that, that you could manipulate the spiritual realm by your, your practices, your sacrifices, your rituals, your incantations, that there's a spiritual realm and you have the power to control and manipulate if you just know the right formulas. And Jesus completely disrupts that view of reality. He also disrupts our view of reality. And we have, in our cultural context, the, the exact sort of opposite view of reality. Our, our tendency as a culture is to, to see the world as a closed reality, that all that is there is matter, that there isn't a supernatural, spiritual dimension to life. Jesus enters every culture and challenges it. He enters a culture that's obsessed with the supernatural, the magical, the demonic, and makes it clear that he's the one who's in charge exclusively can't be manipulated, can't be controlled. He also challenges a culture like ours that says there isn't a spiritual realm. You read through the Gospels, Jesus is very, very clear there is a very real spiritual dimension to all of life. But he also won't let you see him as anything other than the supreme power over every spiritual force in the universe. So the question is, has Jesus' power disrupted your view of reality? Has Jesus' power disrupted your view of reality? You know, one of the quickest ways to get at this, to understand this, is to look at, at how you pray or if you pray. Because you see, if Jesus hasn't significantly disrupted your view of reality, you probably don't pray that often. Because if you think at a, a practical level of how you live your life, I'm not, I'm not talking about what you might say, you know, in a Bible study or in a small group. I'm saying if you, the practical way, a level of which you live your life, the functional way in which you're leading your life is that you view all problems as existing in the material realm, then you are going to primarily or exclusively seek material solutions. However, if Jesus is power has disrupted your view of reality, and you understand that there is a spiritual dimension to all of life, you begin to pray. Because you know it's the, the only way to begin to have any kind of way forward in that sort of a world, that kind of reality. Now again, don't, don't misunderstand me. Not every cold is, is a demonic oppression. Not every, you know, car accident Fender bender is the cause of some sort of evil satanic force. But, but we are naive, and more importantly, we're sub-biblical. If we are never open to the reality of supernatural evil at work in the world. I remember talking with Gitachi when I was in Kenya earlier this spring. He's the leader of our ministry partner in Kenya, which is in a, in a part of the world that's much more open to the spiritual realm, the spiritual dimension of life. And he said something to me in passing that stuck with me and actually was really convicting to me. We were just sitting there talking and again, just kind of offhandedly, he, he said, you know, the devil works often in sickness, disunity, and relational conflict. I thought to myself, how often do I as a pastor look at situations of sickness, disunity, relational conflict, 
and pray that Jesus would address the spiritual dimension of those things. I thought, gosh, not enough. Not enough. This is something that God's really been working on on me uh, personally, challenging me this year, that I do this work. There's nothing special about pastoral work in this. We do any of our work this way. I do my work. I live too much of my life prayerlessly. As if the material realm is all that existed. That there isn't a, a spiritual reality to life. Again, I would say I believe that, but if you were to look at my prayer life, it would probably tell a different story most of the time. Have you allowed Jesus' power to disrupt your view of reality? Or like me, are you so often still living in the narrow confines of a merely materialist view of the world? But it isn't just your view of reality that Jesus' power disrupts if he really starts to get involved in your life. Jesus' power will also disrupt what you treasure which is what happens after this incredible display of the gospel's power over spiritual forces in Ephesus. Everyone in the city starts to realize that there is something more powerful than magic present here. And that this power is, is not just a, an abstract force, but it's personal. It has a name. Its name is, is Jesus. It's, he loves them, that he died for them. He rose again for them. And it transforms what so many of them treasure. And they bring their darkness into light, and it starts to lose its power. Look at verses 17 through 20. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought all of their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found them that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. And that's a picture of of costly repentance a costly following of Jesus, a costly turning away from the former things that had structured their lives to something new. And, and commentators, scholars point out when you look at this that because the value of, of those books that they brought and destroyed was so high, it's unlikely that these were just, this was like hobby for them. The people who brought these books, that this was their livelihood, this was their profession, that they invested all these resources in, in these magic scrolls and books and, and materials because this is how they made their living. Utterly disrupts what they treasure. It disrupts their career. This is what happens when something greater comes into your life. It changes what you love, it changes what you treasure. My wife Rachel and I have two daughters, uh, four and two, and we have a, a baby boy on the way, and just, uh, just over a month is due. Um, and let me just tell you, uh, children are disruptive, and they disrupt what you treasure. I know a number of you are in the, the phase of life of having your first child, or uh, many of you, I mean, we just have a lot, a lot of babies born in the last couple of months, so you're adding children or having children for the first time, and if you're in that stage of life, if that's your story right now, you know firsthand that, that children are disruptive. You know, because before we had kids, one of my, my greatest treasures was on my day off to sleep in a little bit, 
come downstairs, make some coffee, and sit down in the living room with a big stack of books, and just sit by myself and quiet and read, you know, for a couple hours, completely undisturbed. Well, let me tell you, um, that is not something that I'm able to treasure anymore um, because my children haven't discovered sleeping in. So they don't, they don't know about sleeping in. They still get up at 6 or 6.30. They don't know what my day off is. They don't care that it's, my, it's just the day that daddy's home, all the reason to get up earlier. And so they, they come upstairs and they hang out in the bed and it's like, can we get some cereal? And um, those hours of quiet reading, they just don't exist like they used to. You know, but that's okay. Why? Because I treasure those two little girls so much more. So much more than that cup of coffee and that stack of books. I mean, so yes, they have utterly disrupted my life in really costly ways. Much more so than just not being able to drink coffee with books uh, for as long as I want. And yet I wouldn't change a thing. And the same thing happens with Jesus. Yes, his power utterly disrupts what we treasure, often in incredibly costly and life-altering ways. But in the end, as a Christian, you wouldn't change a thing. Because it's something better. Where does Jesus need to disrupt what you're treasuring? I think for many of us, myself included, it's, it's probably comfort. We all too often, I think in our little kind of niche corner of, of the city, we, I think so many of us are inclined to prize treasure and comfort and security above all else. I know that's an inclination of mine. But maybe it's not that. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship. Uh, maybe you're in a romantic relationship, you're dating someone, and, and you know it's not the right thing. You know that's not leading to flourishing for you. Will you allow Jesus' power to disrupt that? Or, or maybe it's an addiction of some kind, a, a, a pattern of sin in your life that you just can't seem to break. Maybe, maybe it's pornography. It's so pervasive. It's so easily accessible. I assure you that Jesus is, is powerful enough to disrupt that, to, to replace it with a greater treasure. Maybe it's, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's prescription drugs. There are all kinds of things, right, that we can get trapped in. Whatever it is, Jesus does have the power to disrupt it. To disrupt what we treasure, to replace it with something better. Now here's the thing. If enough people in a certain place have had their view of reality disrupted by Jesus' power, enough people in a certain place have have had what they treasure disrupted by Jesus, that actually starts to disrupt the city where they live. You see, so many people had become Christians in Ephesus that it actually starts, this is where the chapter goes next, it actually starts to disrupt the economy of the city. Because Ephesus was not only known for its magic, it was also known for the temple of Artemis, which was four times bigger than the Parthenon. Uh, all the great sculpture, sculptors of the day contributed work to it. Um, there was great pride in Ephesus for Artemis and for this temple that was there. 
Artemis was the goddess of money. She was uh, the goddess of banking, the protector of debtors. And, and in that context, it's even hard to talk about religion as some separate dimension of life like we do today. But religion and the economy were so intertwined that, that it explains what happens next. Because as the church grows rapidly, people give up their idols and they stop worshiping at the temple of Artemis. And the city's economy is in trouble because the temple of Artemis and the, the worship of this goddess was so much a part of the economy. No one's buying silver idols anymore, which is a big part of the economy. Uh, and Demetrius is, is the local union leader for the silversmiths, and he starts a riot in the city that goes all the way down to the, the theater, which seated 25,000 people. In fact, you can visit that theater today in, in Turkey. It's a the site of this massive uprising because their business is in trouble. No one's buying these idols from them anymore. Luke tells us that the whole city gathered together there. It reminded me of, of the moment when the World Series uh, was won by the Royals. I know it seems like a very distant memory uh, this year. But the whole city came out to Union Station, right? You can imagine this is kind of the moment of Ephesus. It's a little bit smaller dimensions. But the whole city gathering in one place. Except this isn't a celebration. Uh, everyone is angry. And the Christians are in serious danger. But, but, you know, none of this should surprise us. Because Jesus' power began to disrupt every area of, the, of life. It touched the economy, the very structures of the city. Jesus' power disrupted the pride of the city, the greatest tourist attraction in the city. But again, Luke continues to give us some moments of humor along the way in this passage. As he says in verse 32 that as all these people have gathered in this center uh, kind of theater in the city, he says that most of them don't even know why they had come together. It was like they just saw a crowd screaming, yelling. It's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my grievance in too. And they, they ran down to the city. It, it reminds me of a kind of a recurring theme in the, the show Parks and Rec, if you've ever watched that, that show, that whenever they're holding some kind of a town meeting, that some people randomly just start shouting things they're upset about. Uh, I think my favorite is the woman who says, I found a sandwich in one of your parks, and it didn't have mayonnaise on it. Tell me why. Um, and that's kind of the, Luke wants us to kind of laugh at this moment because there's this huge crowd there, and they're gathered together, and, and they're all upset. Most of them don't even know why they originally, the group came together, and they just start chanting, great is Artemis, great is, for two hours. They're just chanting, great is Artemis. And you see, Jesus, a Jesus-centered church is by definition a disruption to every city. And commenting on this section in Acts, um, Bible scholar and translator William Larkin, who lived and worked around the world in places as diverse as Germany and Portugal, as well as Zimbabwe and Korea, uh, he writes this. He says, Demetrius' appeal to the economy patriotic and religious motives for a defense of paganism against the gospel shows how interrelated these culture are these cultural aspects and then he says this any christianity worth its salt will be a challenge to the pocketbook the flag and the shrine any christianity worth its salt will be a challenge to the pocketbook the flag and the shrine Jesus' power will disrupt our city because Christian faith challenges us. It challenges our culture. It won't leave, leave us be as we are. And, and, and again, Christianity isn't just about some religious ideas. It, it has economic impl implications. It's about what we take pride in, what we treasure. And, and what if all of these sort of built-in hindrances in our city to the gospel going forth are not accidents? 
What if the hindrances in our city to, to sort of the, the, the kingdom of, of God coming to be aren't just accidents, but what if they are well-designed structures by personal supernatural evil? Is that really so far-fetched? There is an enemy behind the enemy, an enemy behind the structures. There are structures in the world strategically placed that do not want the gospel to change this place. Things that do not want Jesus to reign as king. But Jesus' power can disrupt even those things. You know, for example, in the 1700s, in the late 1700s, the economics of the slave trade were so much a part of the economic system that it was hard for people in that context to imagine that anything could be done about it. In fact, one publicist for the West Indies slave trade wrote, the impossibility of doing without slaves in the West Indies will always prevent this traffic from being dropped. The necessity, the absolute necessity then of carrying on must, since there is no other, be its excuse. You know, but there was a handful of Christians, including William Wilberforce, the, uh, Pitt, who would become the prime minister, who believed that Jesus had the power to disrupt this and worked tirelessly against incredible spiritual and uh, other opposition to bring about the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. And what does Jesus' power need to disrupt in our city? You know, what industries would disappear or at least be radically transformed if the majority of people in Kansas City started following Jesus? When I moved to Kansas City after seminary, I lived in an apartment at 10th and Broadway uh, in downtown. And um, I was training for some, some running races, and so I'd often, uh, a couple times a week, I'd be running through the city, and I often would run uh, down Main Street and then back up Grand, uh, kind of through the heart of, of downtown. And on both of those streets, on Main and Grand, there were prominent sort of strip club uh, locations there. And often as I would run past those, I would think to myself, what if Kansas City, with the power of the gospel, came in Kansas City so much in such powerful ways that those places had to close. But, but not because that we would somehow pass a law that made them illegal, but because there would be no longer be any demand. There would no longer be any customers. Because that's what happens in Ephesus. It's not that they don't pass a law that makes silver idols illegal. It's just nobody's interested in them anymore. Nobody wants to buy them anymore. Economist Brian Fickert points out that, that poverty is the result of individual behaviors, abusive and exploitive relationships, oppressive systems, and demonic forces. All four of those pieces are the, what cause poverty. And when he was with us uh, for our CG 2015 conference a few years ago, he reminded us, uh, actually standing here on this platform where he's speaking, that it's white evangelicals who are the least likely to give full weight to the reality of oppressive systems and demonic forces. Most of us in the room are in the category of people who would be the least likely to think that there are oppressive systems or demonic forces at work in these issues. And those two things are so intertwined. 
If Jesus' power is going to disrupt our city, we need to not only address individual behaviors or abusive relationships, but also oppressive systems and demonic forces. I'm just saying, what does that look like? There's a lot there, isn't there? More than we have time to unpack today, but I think most often, working for justice and, and good systems in our city, that happens in the workplace. The place where most of us exercise most power in our world is, in our, in, is where we spend the majority of our time, which is at work. Where we can leverage our power and influence for good. Now, these are massive problems in our city, and it's going to take the whole church, not just our campus, not just Christ community, but the whole church body in Kansas City faithfully submitting to and rejoicing in Jesus' power to see this unfold. But you know what? Even in Ephesus, ultimately... Jesus' movement isn't a, a political threat to Ephesus. Jesus' power will disrupt our view of reality. It will disrupt what we treasure. It will disrupt our city. But none of this is ultimately threatening to the good of the city. Because we have to be careful when we start talking about power and exercising power. Is this, you know, who is this you know, power being foisted upon? But how does Jesus' power work? This is what's so unique about the Christian movement. What is, how does Jesus' power work? Well, Jesus' power is the power to turn the other cheek. It's the power to love your enemy. It's the power to wash one another's feet. It's the power to control your tongue. It's the power to love selflessly. It's the, the power to lay down your life for your friends. It's the power to take up your cross and die to yourself and, and be raised to new life with Jesus. It's the power to experience the love of a Savior who sets you free from all these things that have kept you bound. It's the power of the one who is greater than every spiritual force in the world. It's the power to surrender our own rights for the sake of others. This is what Jesus does when he comes into the world. That's how Jesus' power disrupts. It works in a completely different kind of way. Is Jesus' power disrupting your life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you um, have given us these places in Scripture that challenge us, that challenge me. Um, and I so often approach uh, the idea of, of su the supernatural or certainly the, of supernatural evil with this kind of a base level skepticism and dismissal. And yet you're so clear in your word the reality of a spiritual dimension to all of life, including um, a malevolent one. So we cling to your power this morning. You've been victorious over that. And as we turn to communion, we're reminded that that came through, that victory came not through um, what we would expect, but through sacrificial love and the giving up of oneself uh, in sacrifice. May we allow that reality to so transform our view of the world and life. We follow you more faithfully in Jesus' name. Amen.